Hello and welcome to a football podcast with myself, Christian Jack, and Stephen Caldwell. We are back. I know we didn't do our normal Sunday, but there's a reason for that. And we're going to get into it because we have some big, big games to talk about. Today on the show, we're going to talk about Oli Gunnar's eight-match win streak snapped. Canadian Premier League got a schedule announcement. We'll touch on that. Sebastian Jovinko transfer drama every single day. There's another d- development with that. We're going to talk about that. Miguel Almoron to Newcastle. Frank DeBoer. He's a guest on our show today. We're going to speak to the new Atlanta boss, Frank DeBoer. But first, we have a bit of an announcement. February the 28th, we will be doing a live taping of the podcast at the Rivoli in downtown Toronto. If you are interested to come into the event, and please come, tickets are $20 and available for purchase now at homestandsports.com slash events slash AFP. So that should be your uh, URL to do that. And of course, we'll put that out on all our social media. We're excited to take the show to the people, Stephen Caldwell. We are very much so. It's going to be fantastic. Hopefully you want to come out and listen to us. It's nothing better than having that live show and the interaction there in, in person. So yeah, it's going to be an exciting one. Can't wait for February 28th. Looking forward to that. Get your questions in live and in person. And so let's get into this. It is um, the Games of the Week segment where we go into the, into high-depth question, uh, questions about some of these games. Right away today, we've just come off the set. United against Burnley. Big game at Old Trafford coming in. Everybody expecting another victory. Ole Gunnar Solskjaer's already won. You know, he's, he's got his, he's, he's going for the Premier League record to be the first manager in the Premier League history to win seven in a row. In come Burnley, they've been pretty good in the Premier League over the last few day, few games. I think they've had 10 points in the last 12. But we didn't get what we expected, did we, Stephen Colwell? <laughs> no, we certainly didn't. It was, um, it was a strange game, a strange yeah. start for Manchester United. It wasn't that you know incisive football that we had seen in, in the previous games under Oli Gunnar Solskjaer and, and Burnley were resolute we expected that them to be defensive but they really were fantastic defensively and the, the attacks were breaking down and you felt like it was you know going to be can Manchester United break through and, and get that goal or can Burnley hold out and lo and behold Burnley scored the first goal of the match uh, and then uh, you expect the onslaught from Manchester United that, that never really came and I guess the first 60, 70 minutes, Burnley then go two up mm. and we're thinking, okay, shock on the cars here and, you know, previous Manchester United performances this season, that would have been done and over. And I know there was that brilliant comeback against Newcastle at uh, Old Trafford under Mourinho, but there wasn't enough of that kind of fighting spirit, the stuff that we expect, the comebacks from United. But we saw it today, didn't we? They just... Once that first goal went in, a crazy decision from Jeff Hendricks to, to pull back Jesse Lingard. It was, it was. Uh, I'm, I'm sure Sean Dice going to give him some for that, yeah. either in the changing room after the game or tomorrow, because that that was just a little uh, glimmer of light that United needed to believe, and the crowd got right behind them. I had to say it was Old Trafford of old, they were really rousing them along, and they get the draw in the end, they get the point. It could have been a victory. Yeah, they got the equaliser in Ollie time. Uh, yeah, no, <laughs> so, it's not Fergie time anymore. Ollie time, mate. Yeah, Fergie's around, but it's Ollie time. I mentioned Burnley coming in. Remember, they got smashed on Boxing Day 5 1 by Everton. Since then, in the Premier League, 2 0 against West Ham, 2 1 against Huddersfield, 2 1 against Fulham, and 0 0 against Watford, and another draw. So there's five unbeaten now. There was concerns. I think genuine concerns from us, you as a former captain yeah. of the team, that this team was spiraling out of control, weren't they? That Boxing Day defeat, that is a hammer blow. When you lose 5 1 at home to anybody, that is never good. You start thinking, okay, they got away from everything that they, they were good about. They look like true relegation candidates. But Sean Dyche has said over the last few weeks, we feel like we got our mojo back a little bit more, the concentration's there. 
Heaton is coming in. Do you think that's a bit of a difference? I think he's a superior goalie to Hart. They just look like they're playing a little bit more more comfortable defensively and Tarkovsky and me were outstanding again. Yeah, Tarkovsky and me, first and foremost, were, were brilliant this afternoon, this evening. They were a tremendous to defend in their positional play. That was what we expect from them. There's not been enough solidity to the defending. They had lost many of the characteristics that we expect from a, a Burnley side and a Sean Dice team. So uh, we've been seeing you know, performances like that, but to go to Old Trafford and to put that kind of performance in, I think is is key. I think it's going to give them the real belief and confidence that, that they are going to stay up now, KJ. Uh, There's three teams worse than them, no? There is, that's the point. And, you know, it sounds very negative saying that, but there clearly is three teams worse than them. I, I think the three teams that are in their positions now right. are certainly worse than them. And you could argue that, that Burnley maybe have a bit more fight than even the other teams and around experience. about them. Yes, and they know what it's about. And and you make a great point. Heating coming in was, was huge. I think he was brilliant today again. A couple of saves that he made, these outstanding ones came from a Lukaku foul where he just kind of muscled, maybe it was me out, out of the ball and he strikes with his left foot I don't know how Tom Heaton saved it it was wonderful but he was there and even the save from the, the equaliser from Lindelof it was a Sanchez header wasn't it it was an incredible save and we know, I feel sorry for Tom Heaton because he was an outstanding goalkeeper on the fringes in England squads on the fringes of the England team and then injury meant that he lost his place in the first place at Burnley and it took him a long time to get back significant injury Nick Pope took over and then went to the World Cup because of it Pope was tremendous in fairness and and Sean Dyche was loyal to Nick Pope as he had to be but I always in the back of my mind felt sorry for Tom Heaton because he's a great professional He's, he's a lad who goes about his work and it was an injury that kind of put him out there and we never heard the peep out of them. I know Burnley players, we don't normally hear too much press about them, but there was never any complaints. There was never any moaning. There was never any real rumblings. Oh, I'm going to move here. I'm going to jump on it. He just took it on the chin. He accepted that he was out of the team for a reason and he just worked away and worked away till he got his chance back. And I, I'm, I'm really pleased that he's back in there. I, I think... He's the best goalie at the football club and I, I, yeah, I, I hope he stays until the end of the season. Yeah, I agree with that. I, you know, we talked about this on the show today, didn't we, about Solskjaer. So this obviously is his first, you know, setback in terms of yeah. results. And I think the performance obviously reflected on that. We didn't speak since the tremendous victory in the FA Cup on Friday night against Arsenal, which was an outstanding victory um, for them. But I don't think it'll do anything negative about Solskjaer I think maybe I mean he was quite positive after the game about it maybe it's what they needed I mean you can't win every single match and you know sometimes you just you know you have to go with the flow and realize that the opponent played a really good game and maybe the 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 fact that they ended on a positive and found those two goals much like by the way last year in Burnley winning 2-0 at Old Trafford and and Lingard scored late to tie it 2-2 maybe you can take that as a positive for United yeah I agree with you KJ it's strange to say when you draw with Burnley at home that it's a positive but I really think it was today I think that to come back from 2-0 down and uh, to show the resilience in the fight was was another uh, you know real positive and real feather in the cap for Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. I, I, I just think that the main thing about his his early managerial career at Manchester United has been that positivity, has been promoting that Manchester United way. It's such a cliche thing to say, but I think it's really important for a club of the history of Manchester United. And Solskjaer's proved that you can get some. Tremendous managers in with great experience, Van Hal, Mourinho, even a guy who was at the top of the English game and, and David Moyes just after Alex Ferguson. But 
until you really know what it's like to live and breathe that football club uh, for a long, long time, like a Solskjaer, like Fergie became, uh, and managers before him, Busby, it's very difficult to really uh, have the kind of the spirit of the club. Yeah. And, and Solskjaer embodies that. He has the spirit of the club. And today was another day like that. Didn't go well for them. They've proved yet again they don't have the players to compete consistently to try and you know be close to Manchester City and Liverpool. But what they have shown is they're starting to get a little bit of their mojo back, what it means to wear that shirt. People are starting to grow in that shirt. Guys that maybe even ourselves are written off a little bit thinking that you know they weren't capable of growing into it. Solskjaer said... Anybody that can prove that they have the personality to stand up here and put on that red shirt consistently will be here at this football club. And I think a Lindelof's a great example. We said it on air. He's a guy that we thought, well, is he a Manchester United player? Well, he's starting to prove that, yeah, he's got a lot of quality and he's maybe grown into that shirt a little bit and he'll never be the dominant leader of a, a centre-back pairing, in my opinion, but he could be a partner for for somebody more dominant in, you know, in the summer. Yeah, you got to find those building blocks, have you not? You know, it, it cannot all be about the manager here. It's about finding the players for the next step going forward, whether it's... It, sometimes we get lost and caught up in the moment and it's about building for something else as well. What is the next great United team? team going to feature who are you going to be who's going to be part of that um you know attitude and character drives performance yeah and you've seen with united that is clear when they went 2-0 down against burnley in the 81st minute there was not a and there was not a, a stadium being drowned in anxiety and no. anger like they would have been under the previous manager and i said on tv today and i think it's true he has made those players comfortable in that shirt one, because he was always comfortable in yeah. that shirt and he knows what it means to be comfortable in that shirt, but also because I think he's given them a belief that they are okay to wear it. And there's a lot of them prior to that that didn't think that way because of the, either the obviously because of the prior manager and they went around thinking, we are, I am not good enough to play for a club of this stature. And then Solskjaer's come in and said, hang on a minute. Yeah, you are, you know, you're okay. It's United and we're going to go out there and yes, we've got our, limitations as you quite rightly and I think pointly said you've got to realize they're not a title winning club yet nowhere near it but accept who they are and go out and thrive because of it and you can speak better than I can ever do when you've got a manager who makes you feel good about yourself what you can perform on the field can be second to none yeah he's did that for the players but he's also did that for you know 77,000 people in the stands right. he's, he's made them believe and even when that team went 2-0 down today the fans were the ones that you know, allowed the players to know that we're behind you. Just give us someone here and we're going to take the roof off this place. And we, we saw that today. They, they got the, you know, the penalty kick. And then all of a sudden, everyone looked like they thought they could win the game. It was like Manchester United of old. And yeah. I'm not suggesting for a moment here that they're anywhere near winning Premier Leagues in the near future. They need, they need to get better players in. That's clear. But to start with that mentality and to find out the ones that you're going to keep, the nucleus of that squad that are going to come with you. Obviously, it's going to be a Pogba. It's going to be Rashford. Maybe it's a Lindelof. You know, who's coming? Who's coming on this journey? De Gea's going to be there. Who are the guys that are going to come along and come through this tough, tough time? And I think Solskjaer has been brilliant at that. It's sort of bringing back that confidence, allowing them to believe we we go on so much in modern football about tactics and and what it means to win games and different formations and different styles of playing really what we learn from football is that first and foremost it's about believing in yourself believing in your teammates and competing mm. that is it 
We saw, a, a, we'll get to City in a minute, we saw a City goal that was won through a brilliant header, a great tackle, a great moment. It's it's not just about the technical and tactical sides of the game. It's sometimes about just standing up, pushing your chest out and saying, I'm capable here, I've got the confidence, I'm going to inspire somebody next to me to do something good on this field. And the, the, the inspiration starts with the coach, starts with the manager. At Manchester United, after the doldrums of Mourinho, and uh, underperforming from every single player, I'd say almost within that squad, they found a man that's brought back that belief, brought back that confidence in the players, and it's been a great building block for what's going to come next. Maybe with Solskjaer, maybe with somebody else, but it's been really critically important for the football club. Manchester United fans listening, hashtag Ask AFP. You tell us who should be in, who should be out going forward for Manchester United, and I'm sure in the future, in many, many shows to come, we'll be discussing who we believe will be the part of that club. Uh, you talk about City and Newcastle, another former Stephen Colwell team, Newcastle yeah. United. Uh, what a performance today by them. Um I want to, I'm going to say something now that I never thought I'd say this season, a, a word to describe Manchester City, and I'll see if you agree with me. I thought they were complacent yep. today. And, and you know, we've, we're taping this pretty quickly after. I only heard a little bit of what Guardiola said. I'm not sure he would ever say that publicly anyway. Scoring a goal early in a game, let me first of all ask you this and your experience. When you score a goal early like that, I'm sure it's an enormous boost, but can sometimes it be a little bit of a negative as well right away when suddenly you think people can start maybe loosening their, their concentration a bit earlier than they would? For a team, by the way, who'd scored 30 goals to one in their last seven games in this month. I, I got the feeling watching them that they were in second gear thinking, this is done, lads. We're going to get through this easily. And then in the second half, Newcastle upped their level a bit, went a bit direct, got a little bit of a bounce here and out that went the right way, then a mistake. And suddenly, City at 2-1, they're trying to go from second gear to sixth gear in the fast lane and they can't go through the gears. Yeah, um, the early goal, I think that when you score a goal inside the minute, you should never lose or draw a football match. Right. Psychologically, when you score a goal so early, I've been there, you know, the side scoring the goal and conceding the goal, all of a sudden, the negative and positive impact of that is huge, KJ. We, we scored a goal once at St. James's. It was Shearer. We played Manchester City and uh, they took centre, much like today. Manchester City took the centre and they went back and back and back and Shearer chased down uh, Carlo Nash. You remember yeah, the goal and he I blasted did. it off his, yeah. his backside into the net. First touch of the game for Newcastle. Yeah, I think it might have been yeah, quickest yeah. goal of the year yeah. in, uh, in the back of the net in, I don't know, eight, nine seconds, whatever it was, maybe longer than that. But right away, I was playing in that game and I just thought, can't get beat. Can't get beat at home with a crowd behind you mm. in a game like that. I just felt so confident. I've lost early goals and immediately you go, backs against the wall today. I don't know how we're going to win this game. You just the, the psychological effect is huge. So, oh, like what a disaster for Manchester City yeah. to then be playing against, you know, be... be, be so much better than a side like Newcastle and that's no disrespect I'm sure Rafa Benitez would would admit to that as well and to go a goal up and then to be complacent you hit the nail on the head to look bored mm -hmm. what a thing to say about De Bruyne and Silva and Fernandinho and Aguero they look bored they look like they just wanted it to be 10 o'clock and to be back in the bus driving back to Manchester they just wanted the three points you can never be complacent like that in football you can never just expect to, to come away with a victory and they sort of expected that today because of that early start and I think Guardiola will be livid about that 
there's something doesn't quite smell right with this team for me. I don't know what it is. They look like they need a spark. Do you think fatigue p- plays a part in it a little bit or no? Guardiola would never say yeah. that. He's, he would laugh at that question. He would say no chance because he thinks my players are ready always. He never, he would never, he never did with Barcelona. He never did with Bayern Munich and he's never done with Manchester City. He has never used that word yeah. as an excuse for anything. I mean, he rarely uses excuses. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, it, the tempo of the game wasn't there for me. It was almost like, and, and I showed some clips at halftime with De Bruyne and Sterling and they were winning the chess match of the game in, in that channel on the right-hand side, Sterling getting behind Richie. But one-on-ones, second balls, the desire areas of the game, Newcastle were able to match them. They can't match them in overall quality and talent, but they can match them yeah. and surpass them in desire. And I felt like they had that more than they did today. And I thought that was concerning for me. And, I, and I'll say why. I thought that Man City had that about them at, Le- at, at Leicester uh, as well, when they've lost that game as well already yeah. this season. And you know who doesn't have that? Liverpool. And you think about what Liverpool were able to do when they went behind at Burnley. You think about what they were able to do in the, against Palace, you know, when they go behind or when they or when they have those moments where they go, okay, here we go, boys. We've got to step it up here and we've got to go to another level. And City haven't been able to do that in certain areas this year when they've gone when they've had those problems in Palace at home. When they've had when they faced disarray, they've had a very, very difficult time getting back from that and turning games around very quickly. And and Liverpool have been far better than that. Do you know why I think that is? Because of a lack of leadership. Right. I think that Liverpool have that. They have Milner. They have Henderson. Previous uh, Premier League teams who won consistently. Chelsea's and Manchester United. Keane could go on and on. John Terry. They have a guy that grabs a game. Yeah. And, and irrelevant losing 2-0, winning 1-0, whatever it is. They sense the tempo of the game. And they're higher than their own individual performance in that game. And they call a couple of people out and they say, this is too slow. That's not good enough. And and, and they sort of nip it in the bud before they end up 2-1 down. And then they're trying to go from second to six. So, you know, it's maybe an easy thing to say. But I look at that team. Davis Silva leads through his quality. He's wore the armband a number of times. Fernandinho, again, mm-hmm. is the same kind of thing. Aguero. He's combative. Uh, Aguero is a brilliant... Stri- you know, I- I'm taking nothing away no, from I get what the point. guys are, but there's not that figure that goes like, wait a sec here. We're at St. James's Park. We're 1-0 up. This is too slow. Let's change this. Let's do that. Let's kind of change the tempo of the game. They were just... They were they were hoping that time rolls along in that the, stadium. The quality would, be, would win yeah. out. The time will just roll along. We're the better side. We'll keep the ball. Again, back to my earlier point, they forgot the really important things in football matches. It's competing. Mm. It's being up for it. It's being ready. It allows you to then take whatever your style and whatever your your uh, way of playing is onto the next level. Once that drops off, everything else becomes difficult. And Newcastle were a team today who stuck to their style, kept their belief, saw a little bit of vulnerability in Manchester City and then capitalised when it mattered. And they deserved it because of that, because they wanted it more. Yeah, great point. I, I've just pulled this quote up from my notebook here. And this these are the words of Vincent Company, And he said this at the end of last season when they won the title. We have won two titles and both times in the past we came back, there was an edge missing. Yeah, and only special teams retain titles. We have to become one. That edge missing that he's describing those those past teams who've won under managers Mancini, Pellegrini, 
that was missing today. Yeah, and he's the only leader, isn't he? But he's he's unfortunately Father Time's catching he's up. He's not good enough to play. No, because he's injured Stones now, Laporte, but he's not good enough. So Stones and Laporte are better players Far better, yeah. than company, and he's getting found out a little bit at that high, high level. But he's a leader, and so he recognises that, and he's injured. But if he was on the part today, I, I, I think Stones and Laporte should play every game. They're the best players, but... Yeah. They need to find someone in their games. That's what they're missing. Can one of them stand up and become that leader? Or, you know, where do they find that from? And it's a very easy thing to say after a defeat. Uh, everyone thinks they're an expert and they know what. But when I look at that City side, when adversity's there, I just don't see somebody changing the game through a tackle or you know, I, I screaming at someone or just an incident. I see them changing it through moments of extreme quality. They've yeah. got it all over the field and on the substitutes bench. But that's what you need at times. And that's what you need when you have a relentless Liverpool who have a Milner and a Henderson and a Fabinho and a Van Dijk. And some of them are not the greatest players, but they've got a desire and a hunger. And that's what I think's given them the edge just now. The last thing I would say about it is today was the first time that Kevin De Bruyne and David Silva started a Premier League game together and it's 24th game. That That is a, a problem. And De Bruyne is still not himself. Yeah. And he's a marvellous player. And, I, and for me, the best player last season, and I know Mo Salah, would, would, people would, you know, if you're driving around your cars, don't break, <laughs> don't shout at me. For me, it was, it's just a little bit better than him and they won the Premier League because of De Bruyne. And... He's just he's just not himself right now. No, you know he's still a, a wonderful talent, but it might be. It, I'm starting to wonder if may, maybe next season might be the first time we truly see. Get this guy through the season, stick him on a beach, take him on holiday, let him rest, and then next season might be the explosive door. Because I don't know, you're my expert on injuries, but you know yeah. when you come back from an injury, you just suddenly you can't just turn it on right away in any professional sport, can you? Right away, and he's no. still showing signs. Yeah, he is showing signs, and. If I'm a Manchester City fan, I would be a little bit concerned that it's mental. I think there's something just... There seems to be something there between Guardiola and him, and I don't know what it is. And, and I hope they can patch it up because mm. I do think they're great for each other. But I think there's something there. I think De Bruyne thinks he's at a higher level of fitness or, or sharpness to what Guardiola thinks. He took him off today again, yeah. didn't he? And so I think there's something there, and I think it's bubbling underneath the surface. And if I was Manchester City fan, I'd be very, very concerned about that because they need De Bruyne firing. You might be right, KJ. It might still be some, uh, you know, remains of that injury or or, or, or a fitness thing. But to me, it's a, it's a mental thing and, and they've got to address it. And Guardiola, one of the smartest managers in world football, is probably thinking about that. He, he, he's got to create that bond again between him and Kevin De Bruyne and maybe a few of his other players uh, and, and and try and get them back to the form that we've seen them in in the past. Yeah, the one thing I'd say quickly about that also is that what I, the one thing I liked about Riyad Mahrez when he came to City was that he, he brought spontaneity and they were they were too predictable sometimes when he's not on the field and you know maybe they can look at getting him look they they've got Arsenal Sunday we'll be all over that game that yeah. will be our next um uh football podcast and maybe we'll get a big response um quickly before we get to Shawnee, it was the FA Cup you played in it many times this is a very special tournament yeah. great to see uh so many little um I say little, I don't want to be, you know, but smaller grounds, hosting yeah. bigger teams. We saw some real shocks, um, you know, 
everywhere I go now, I read and hear people trying to prove to me that, oh, the FA Cup's still around. You don't need to sell it to me. You know, I'm a kid of the 80s. I love the FA Cup. But, but I still think now, even in an era where everyone expects the big clubs to win it, we're getting shocks galore. And now we're getting big teams drawn against each other again. It's wide open. It's wide open. It really is. We've got a big game between Chelsea and Manchester United next. So one of them are going to go out. City are still in there, obviously. And then you're looking at, you know, the next favourites in line. You, I, I quite like a Brighton, uh, the bad day today in the Premier League, but I think they've had a, a decent season, a Palace. and Watford. Yeah, and a Watford. Yeah. And then what that does to maybe even their Premier League season, because they teams, I'm sure the manager's in this position where Roy Hodgson, you know, wants to survive, but as a cup run goes longer and longer, does it affect, the league form doesn't improve the league form so you get that real dynamic that comes in there as well so I, I do think the FA Cup's a brilliant tournament I love the part that it plays and and indeed the league play and obviously an opportunity for fans to have a trip of a lifetime I can remember I was at Newcastle in the, the late 90s when I played there but I was you know not really near the first team uh, 98 you That's know right. we went to the final we, we played against Arsenal and then 99 we played against Manchester United to won the treble so we're kind of unlucky there <laughs> And they all compete us in the one before for the double, and then you know we lost the treble. But their trips were amazing. I think we went back in two thousand or two thousand and one. Chelsea beat us in the semi under Bobby, so I, I was kind of near the team, but I wasn't part of any of these squads. And uh, I was as a supporter in a couple of them, and it's an amazing trip to Wembley. You'll know that you'll have been yeah. there a few times. Have you ever been there? Not for a long time, yeah. 2015 <laughs> I lived my okay, it's okay, a bucket yeah. list moment I lived my dream I got to the final um, and uh, look I have a very very complex relationship with the FA Cup but <laughs> when I was a child my team you mentioned them were the record leaders of the they, they had seven wins right. and Tottenham tied it in 1991 Wow. and then yeah we're still stuck on seven and some teams I don't know Chelsea may have like 14 or something <laughs> they were, Arsenal have had like three like, four years so yeah. look we'll never have that record again but yeah, I got to the final and I went as a fan and paid my and ticket. And some experience, isn't I, it's, it? There's nothing like yeah. it. I'm telling you, there's nothing. If you're a fan of a club like that, and we just mentioned some of them, to go and spend that night or that day at that game and listen to the, the whole ceremony before and see your team come out for the FA Cup final. I watched every game as a child. It, yeah. The, the, honestly, we're... We started not, at 12 p.m., wouldn't we? Yeah, up all exactly. Day. Brilliant. The, the, these were moments I remember as a child when nobody was on the streets. It's not like that anymore. I get it. But these were the days. These are the days you remember where you were when. Yeah. You remember where you were when. You know, that was the biggest moment, the, one of the biggest sporting days of the calendar year in, in, in the UK. Yeah. It's, not, it's not like that now. And unfortunately, it's about money. We saw Pochettino talk about how important it is to get in the top four. They lost two games in the cup in four days. Well, you get to the last 60 in the Champions League, you get 60 million pounds. You win the FA Cup, you get six. Yeah. So we all know why, why the priority is there. But as fans, we shouldn't worry about money. It's about what stays in your heart as a memory. Of course. You know? And my, I have to tell this story quickly, but my greatest memory of the FA Cup was, uh, you'll maybe know the, the year, but it was uh, Di Matteo. Chelsea yeah. went 2-0. Was it against Borough? 38 second goal, did they beat, Yeah. yeah they did beat they beat Borough? Yeah, they did. Yeah. So, I think it's 38 seconds. Yeah, so day of the game, uh, you know, probably shouldn't tell us because I was 14 or something, but my mum's like, I want to be drunk. Better. No, oh, I wasn't right. drunk. Yeah, <laughs> tipsy. No. So the day of the game, I said to my mum, can you please take me to the bookmakers? Yeah, we've all done that as 14-year-olds. Yeah. Come on. So my mum takes me in and I, I, I put a pound on 
De Matteo in 2 0. Fantastic. And I couldn't believe it. Uh, I don't know what the odds were, but they were like 100 to 1. That's brilliant. So it's like I was a millionaire, you know, yeah, I felt like I was so much money. And yeah. he scores that early goal. And I think they maybe scored 70 ish minutes. Yeah. And I'm hanging on. <laughs> Honestly, I'm watching the telly. I'm pacing up and down. I can't sit down. I'm yeah. just wanting this hundred quid that's going to like last me about nine months, yeah. you know? Oh, yeah. And it was absolutely fantastic. And, and they're the kind of memories that you get from the FA Cup. I just love the build up to the game. The, you know, the pageantry, the walking out, the manager at the front of the line, that amazing tournament. And I'm, I'm glad that it's still got that sparkle. There's nothing better than betting as a teenager, by the way. <laughs> it's great, I, isn't there's it? There's nothing better than betting as a teenager. No matter what you do, whether you're into gambling now or not, <laughs> what you win as a teenager feels better yeah. than anything you're ever going to win ever yeah. again. I won money on Grand National every year, the big horse race and stuff yeah, like that. It's great. There's nothing better than betting as a teenager. Uh, anyway, that's our wrap up of the games. And as I said, we will talk more about that massive game on Sunday, Manchester City hosting Arsenal. And by then, boy, oh boy, we'll, we'll be a significant gap in the title race. Hashtag ask AFP to send in your questions. And over to our esteemed producer, Sean Kay, to go through some of the headlines, Shawnee. Uh, we got an extended week, so we got a little bit more headlines in here. But, Good, uh, let's, let's hear them. Let's get at it. Uh, today, uh, we were all at the Canadian Premier League announcement, um, April 27th. Forge FC versus York 9. Overall thoughts on the announcement today. We were all there. And 24,000 seats at Tim Horton's field. Are we going to see a sellout? What do you think? Wow. Sellout. Sellout. I think it would be difficult. Hard to ask that. Yeah. Yeah. 24,000 seats. Uh, I'm disappointed I can't get in my Volkswagen and go to the game. (laughs) (laughs) How about you? But... um, I'm not going to be at the game, uh, Stephen Colwell. Yeah, you're not going to be I'm at the game. I'm not going to be at the game, no. Um, the reason why we're not going to be at the game is because we are employed by TSN to broadcast the Toronto FC match that day, which is also taking place in the afternoon at three o'clock, I believe, against Portland Timbers. And I believe we're live on CTV that day. Yeah, we are. Um, yeah, so it should be a good occasion. Um, unfortunately... Forge FC versus York 9 will be a special occasion, but it is clashed. It is clashing with that game because it is a one o'clock match. Um, I was there today. It's great to see it. I want to start with a positive. I thought great to see so many people who care about the game we love and that has been very good to you and I in the same room together. I hope it, quite frankly, is the kind of day that I often think back to from November 2006 when I was at the top of the CN Tower and Toronto FC launched with uh, Mo Johnston and they had the first four or five players there with Posniak and many others, Marco Reda. And um, I hope that we look back at that as the beginning of something special. We need this league to, to work. Um, and I'll let you come out on that in a second. I will say this, hosting the game at one o'clock in Hamilton between Forge FC and York 9 on a day in an afternoon when Toronto FC are playing in my own personal opinion, is an asinine decision. It is absolutely ridiculous, okay? Ridiculous. And nobody will tell me otherwise. Nobody can explain to me that that is the right thing to do. I get it. The people who care about CPL, you'll be there. The people who care about Forge FC, you'll be there. The people who care about York 9, you'll be there. I'm not worried about you. I'm worried about the ones who I want to care about you. Yeah. And they're not going to be there. They're not going to be there because they're either going to be at TFC or they're not going to read about it because the people you need to be there to cover the game are also going to be at TFC because whether they want to go there or not, and we and you might want to go there, we can't because they're going to be told by their employers, television companies, radio stations, newspapers, magazines, you need to go to cover Toronto FC because that is the bigger draw. 
that's how I feel about it. Yeah, I, I'm I'm totally with you, KJ. I, I think it's an absurd decision to have the game on that same day. This is your one chance, your inaugural game. This is when you have the opportunity to have every fan of sport, certainly every fan of soccer in the great country of Canada, focused on this game. And yet you're going to do it alongside a, an established franchise, a fan base of twenty-five to 30,000 people who are going to be at BMO Field at 3pm. It's just crazy. Why not have it a few days before? I'm shocked that it's Saturday. Day after, maybe. I'm shocked yeah. that it's, uh, you know, alongside even any kind of MLS games. I thought they would have had their own slot, their, you know, maybe a Thursday night or a Sunday afternoon or something a little bit different. So it's disappointing. And another thing for me, KJ, is that, and I get that Forge FC and York 9 are going to be big teams in this league, but... This is a national league and I'm yeah. hearing some great things coming out of Halifax, HFX Wanderers and how exciting things are there and different markets, cavalry. And I want to see more about what it looks like there. I want to see how you know passionate fans are in their places. So I'm a bit disappointed that the game's on the outskirts of, of Toronto. You know, I wanted to see it somewhere else. I wanted to see it between uh, teams from there. And, and maybe that's just my own personal preference. But To give I, it a true Canadian feel. Yeah, I I'm would, sure people listening, sorry to interrupt, and, and Stu, let us know, we, we would be fascinating to hear. We, one of the reasons why we love this show is because we want to be more interactive with you. I'm sure people out there would, who are not in our market of Southern Ontario often feel like, oh, here we go again. It's the Toronto show, you know? And... I'm with you. I'm sure they yeah. feel the same way. Or why do we have to launch it there, you know? Yeah, I just think that it was a chance to kind of push out somewhere else. And Tim Hortons feels absolutely fantastic, but they're not getting anywhere near 24,000 people at this game. No. So, you know, unless television shoots it really, really well and it looks busier than maybe what it is, it's going to look kind of empty and it's going to look a bit disappointing. And then... 15 minutes after the end of this game you're probably going to see a packed beam of field and an MLS content and, and, and you know experience that of course has 20 years on the CPL and a franchise that has 12 years on it and these fledgling ones that are, that are going to be playing so they have a start but it's going to look better mm -hmm. so let's why not go to Halifax and pack out their, their three or four thousand seater stadium and Get everyone in there, get an excitement, build something, or, or, or you know, play it on a different day, and maybe get everyone along. The people like you mentioned that that, that, that have a conflict on that day because of their uh, duty to to cover the the MLS game. It's disappointing because I, I'm like you. We are absolutely behind this league. We 100%. know it's important for kids to develop and to have a place to play beyond three MLS teams. We want to support it. We're, we're, we're there. We, we, you know, we're going to give everything to, to, to try and support it in, in every way. And we, we certainly don't want to be one of the two of the naysayers or everything's negative and that. Well, we're not like that at all. We just think this is a strange decision to play on April 27th, uh, just before TFC. Uh, and, and we hope that, uh, you know, it's one of very few minor mistakes that CPL makes in its first season. Uh, the Vancouver Whitecaps had a busy week. They announced a new kit that's uh, a throwback to their soccer bowl days. Uh, they signed four new players. Uh, Derek Cornelius, Canadian international, one of them. Um, we'll talk deeper uh, when we get to our preview show uh, later in the month. Uh, but what do you think of these decisions and what do you what do you expect from the Caps this year? 
Yeah, it's it's great to see them signing players. Um, the kit, by the way, is glorious. It's beautiful, isn't it? Yeah. I love it. Yeah, it's one of those kits where you go, please never change it again. <laughs> um, but yeah, obviously, we have to change kits as often as we do now. Um, yeah, it, I, I mean, there's there's some encouragement there. I, I have to say, it's it has a bit of a championship manager Whitecaps feel right now, where you just take over a franchise and just gut out the team, <laughs> don't even play a game and just sign all these players from all across the world and just throw them in a, in a algorithm and hope that it works. And unfortunately for the Whitecaps, they're not algorithms, or maybe fortunately, they're, they're, they've got to play on the field together. Yeah. Um, I've always been skeptical of any team. Um, Fulham in the Premier League, a great example, QPR a few years ago, where you try and rip up everything and start again right away. Um, interesting, I think in my own discussion with Mark Dos Santos on one of the interviews I've done with him already, the word rebuild did come out. I think it's clear that they are rebuilding and expectations are going to have to be um, moderate because yeah. of that. But he's also saying we want to get in the playoffs. So we'll, we'll find out just how close they can get to that. But yeah, look, it's, as you said, the previous show, we're going to get into it really in detail. There's rumors of other players coming in as well, Huang and Kamiri. So um, yeah, lots to discuss, but lots to prove as well. Yeah, it, it feels a little bit like an expansion franchise, yes. isn't it, with the, with the changes and, and not just personnel, but... It sounds like a, a real change in the way that they're going to play, uh, which I think is pretty interesting because when we look back the, the, under Carl Robinson, there was a great deal of success for the Vancouver Whitecaps. And in the end, it was clear that, you know, there was going to be a change. There needed to be a change. Things had run their course and, and, and Carl Robinson was going to leave and someone else was going to come in. So, you know, that's life. That's football. That's what happens. But to try and transition and change so quickly... Um, you know, and so clearly is not that easy. So I just hope that Marta Santos gets some time, gets some, uh, you know, time to, to have some teething problems and to try and create this new style. I don't know a great deal about the names. Uh, I, you know, I've not seen them play very often. Cornelius, we obviously know, and I like that signing. And uh, Venuto seems like he has a little bit of pedigree. Mm -hmm. He's a winger. He's going to be exciting. But... It's not that easy to come to this league and adapt. And when you're asking six, seven, eight, maybe 10 players to adapt, KJ, it's concerning for me because, you know, it's difficult to gel at any level. You mentioned the Fulham and these guys are, you know, are, are top level players and a lot of them even have English experience. But when you're asking guys to come from all over and come and play in MLS and gel, you're asking for a little bit of trouble for me. Again, I hope I'm wrong. I want the best from the Canadian teams and I hope they get up and running really quickly. But I see some teething problems in the early stages. Uh, Nick Hagland moved uh, back to home in Cincinnati and Gregory Vanderweel was sent packing back to Toronto. Um, a little bit of thoughts on that. And do you believe that Toronto FC will replace either of them or were they sort of just needed to go anyway? Uh, I think they'll be replaced. Um where do you want to go, mate? Hagland or Vanderweel first? <laughs> Two very different, <sighs> contrasting viewpoints. Well, let's say first and foremost, Nick Hagland is a brilliant servant. You can say this. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I know Nick it. well, but you, you were his teammate. So go well, on. I'm I'm very good friends with him, and, and it's for a reason, because I just appreciate everything that he is as a, a human being class, and yeah. as a football player. A class act, a great influence on a change room. A lad that came in, to say he was he was green was was an understatement. <laughs> it was we we often laughed. His first interview was basically I'm here to mark 
Jermaine Defoe in training, you know, he gave this really exuberant interview and we were like, who have we signed here? What is this lad all about? very well, he cleared off to England. <laughs> so, you know, he was a kid who was who came in with this, this energy and it was difficult to know what to expect. There's certainly me coming from, from UK where everyone's so reserved and, you know, you don't really come out with, with statements like that, but it looked like he had won a competition to come to TFC yeah. and I'm glad to say from the first day I met him, till the very last and I'm, I'm going to be his friend for the rest of my life is that he's a brilliant person he's he's a brilliant player he's a guy who listened and learned and improved throughout his entire TFC career he's became in my opinion well he's an MLS Cup winner and he's and he's a, a an out and out MLS player for me Cincinnati I've got a, a brilliant player and also a brilliant man and so I'm disappointed to see him leave Toronto because I'm not going to see him as much from a personal point of view but I'm glad for him because he needed to leave. He was never going to be in the Greg Vanning's favourite 11 at TFC. And it was time for him to go and establish himself back home, I must add, and to create a partnership and, and become a, a day and a week in, week out MLS player. Because I think he deserves that. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, um, can't really put it any better. Uh, you know, a player who maximises everything he possibly yeah. can uh, to a player who maybe didn't um, in Gregory Vanderweel. And... Um, you know, this came as no surprise to me when I broke the story about Gregory van der Weel um, being sent packing out of training camp. As we discuss and we take this show now, still no clear news from Toronto FC in terms of what that decision will be. We can expect that he's going to get bought out. I can report and say, and I already have, that there was numerous um, internal discussions about possibly doing that already after last season. We can also say having covered all their games, that it was clearly a player underperforming for the amount of, not I don't, I don't want to just talk about money, but expectation yeah. that you'd expect, that you'd have from him. Toronto FC won an MLS Cup with Stephen Bateshaw as a right back in 2017 and then made a decision to improve in that area. And since then, I've read and heard a lot of people saying that they shouldn't have done that. They should have just left Stephen Bateshaw. I'm going to stick to my own thought process in this is that I... I wasn't against the decision to try and improve the just because the the experiment went wrong. It didn't mean that you weren't right to try it. Yeah, uh, you know the formula. I thought was a good decision. If you want to get better in that area, go out and get it. But and I've wrote some notes down here, so I get this right. It is a pure example about what psychologists call stimulus response. We must be careful about what we ingest mm -hmm. in everything, you know, substances, people, life, influences, and they got it wrong. They did. They got it wrong, and it wasn't close. It wasn't a borderline wrong. It was an enormous, enormous error yeah. of judgment. Yeah, and they realized that almost immediately, in my opinion, yes. as soon as he got there. Um, I have to say... I met Gregory Vanderweel on a few occasions and he's a likable guy to me. He seemed very polite, very nice. But I always thought he was a guy that had checked out in his football career. Mm -hmm. <laughs> he he was almost more interested in other things and in, in, in life and all the different business uh, you know, things that he has, initiatives that he has, and, and he seems like he's a smart guy. But that was my initial opinion, and then when I saw him on the field. I just saw a guy that was exactly that. He, yeah. he he did what he had to do to get by, and because of his considerable talent, often it was it was enough. You know, he never really made huge glaring errors, but I wanted more. There was a whole 
flank that he was supposed to be bombing up and down. And and we know that he has it in his legs to do so. You know, I'd heard reports from coaches and fitness staff within TFC that this guy's like a Rolls Royce. He's up and down like you'd never believe. He's fit as a fiddle. There's not an ounce of fat in him. He's not an aging uh, player who had lost his legs. A guy who played in the World Cup final yep. eight years ago, just over eight years ago. And now he's here and he's he's just getting by. So it was a it was bad recruitment. They didn't do their homework properly. He was a troublesome character. We saw it in a number of different areas. And then they're asking him to come in on considerable money. We have to mention it. It's a salary cap league. It's yep. really important. You spend every dollar importantly. You, you, you make the right decisions. They didn't do that with Gregory van der Weel, And they realised right away we've made a mistake. They maybe would have been bolder just to change that in the summer, uh, in the winter, sorry, when the season ended. I think they would have been ahead of the time, sorry KJ. To I think they would have done if Akeche hadn't happened. Right, okay. So they had to buy out Akeche oh, right. and it doesn't, sh- to, if you go to ownership again of and course. say, we failed again here, guys, we have to buy, and they're going to go, hang on a minute, you're going to buy out another guy? Yeah. So in, I think he turns up for training camp within a couple of days, there's, yeah. there's tension already. Those who don't want him there already are like, hang on a minute, we're going to just have to, we're just going to have to, play our cards here bang yeah. cards are on the table you're going to have to deal with this guy ah uh, yeah no, and it was very public what happened if you know what's to be believed it was a real yeah. shout match between him and Vanny he was you know really uh, degrading the manager and, and that, the head coach that just can't happen and uh, it was 10 times worse within the changing room from the stories that we've yes. heard this guy was just trouble from the start and he was causing all these little divides and I'm not saying he's the only one I think they've got a a few problems in that locker room that, mm-hmm. that, that Greg Vanny is going to have to address but he's did the right thing here he's got to get this guy out of town get him away it's going to be a problem if you have to buy him out you have to buy him out but he's got to go and certainly if he's publicly calling out the coach and the players are watching that the decision has to be made and in fairness to Greg he made it immediately he was strong with it they sent him home You'll never see him there again, in my opinion. Slow off season so far for Toronto <laughs> FC, Shoney. Yeah, moving to another note, Toronto FC. Uh, <laughs> so since we've uh, had the podcast last week, we've had Sebastian Javinko in camp. We've had Sebastian Javinko gone from camp. But no, no, Sebastian Javinko was there, and he was just going to a doctor. What's going on with Sebastian Javinko? Okay, here's the latest from Sebastian Javinko's story. Um, we now know, and I've reported some of this, that um, the club has received an offer for Sebastian Javinko. We know that the club has either officially or verbally extended an offer to Javinko themselves. They've turned down the offer from the Middle Eastern club, and they have also, um, from Bill Manning's words, offered him, verbally or officially, um, a deal that would make him one of the top seven pay players in MLS, which is approximately four and a half, five, six, five and a half million dollars. A substantial amount of money, uh, but not at the money that Jovinko wants. Jovinko and Jovinko's camp right now in Toronto FC remain far apart. And here we are in the last year of the deal. um, And this isn't going away. The story is not going away. And it is clear that the representatives of Jovinko are working very hard for him to get significantly paid in his next deal. Yeah. And, A part of me understands that, you know, I I think he's been a great success in MLS, maybe one of the best players to ever play in this league. I agree with that. His first season to me was exceptional. And then I think there's been a a slow decline since then. And I still think he's at an extremely high level. But to me, you can't get emotional about this. You have to look at output of finances, 
to what happens on the field. And to me, it doesn't make sense. We know Toronto FC are a team that are trying to transition from... It doesn't make sense to pay him? No. Okay. It doesn't make sense to pay him, in my opinion. The age that he's at, what we're starting to see on the field, the number that he demands, that he wants to be at, this, the same as before or possibly even more. So to me, what Bill Manning said is exactly the right way of going about it. We still want you to be here. We've paid you substantially for five years. You're 32. You're coming up for 32. We're going to pay you a bit less. Mm. And we're testing how much you actually want to be at Toronto. Maybe that means extra years. Maybe he stays at the, you know, playing a playing contract till he's 35. I don't know the ins and outs, but I think it's the right thing to do from the club. But I also understand the player's point of view and I understand why the agent's pushing this. So back to where we were two or three, four weeks ago when we said, come out and be clear. Toronto FC front office have to come out and be clear about this. Give him an ultimatum. Tell him how it is. If he wants to be difficult and he doesn't want to play, then we're going to move you on. This is what it is. Or play out your contract and let's see where we are at the end of 2019. Mm. And, and it needs to be a lot clearer. Instead, we're just hearing different reports. And yeah, you know, Bill Manning's came out now and he did a show on TSN 1050 this morning and he was, he was a lot clearer than he has been. But that could have been done three weeks ago. Don't you agree? Yeah. No, I would say that. I would say this also, just to clear up some logistics, and I've, you know, I've, I've obviously played a little bit of part in reporting some of these stories. So, Sebastian Chivinko has an option for 2020. Yeah. Now I'm hearing it's a mutual option, which is basically nothing. It doesn't mean anything. Um, so, why is that important? Jose Altidore's contract does not feature an option, and is out of contracts by the end of the 2019 season. We know, talking about European football many times, that a player within six months of his contract can sign a, a contract with another club. They can sign another uh, and yeah. they can leave. So the, I want to know, and I've tried to find this out from both sides, whether that can happen with Jovinko. And from my understanding right now, yes, it can. So the option is meaningless. Right. It's similar to what the Camillo situation was a few years ago when he just decided, no, I'm not going to stick around, I'm gone. So now we're facing this scenario as well. We're facing a scenario where both these assets to the club could start the season, play out the season, score goals, and sign for other teams in the middle of the season where you need to substantially get back into becoming a winning franchise. Yeah. And they could be signing for other teams. Yeah. So, so that's something I think they need to think about. And I don't think they've thought about it enough. The other thing is, is that it is February, almost. People are listening to this, it will be some of the people. And the season is starting in less than three weeks. Yeah. And these discussions are still going on. And they're not going away, Stevie. We're, no. We're, they're not going away. And so you got to either decide what's going on now or, or, you know, if you're willing to play it out and you're willing to stick to your number, you've got to put up with the consequences and the repercussions of that. And that might be watching these players underperform and leave in the middle of the season. They might leave in the middle of the season because Jovinko did it for Juventus. Jovinko let his contract run out and then they would signed a pre-contract with Toronto FC and Juventus said, no, go. Because Jovinko yeah. was an emotional man as he is now. And one of the first words he said when he came to Toronto was, I feel the love here. I feel I'm part of family here. And I didn't feel that in Turin. So that brings us all full circle. Yeah. Nice. It's similar to how he's feeling now. He's not feeling the love. And he's looking elsewhere. And he's had an amazing four-year affair with this club. They had an incredible, 
euphor- euphoric yeah. heights of never oh, we've never seen before. And it's fallen apart a little bit. And they make a decision now. Both of them are going to make a decision. Do we carry on this marriage or are we going to break up? And there's no in between for me. No, there's not. And it tells us a little bit of the psyche of, of the player and of the man. And it's, it's part of the reason why we love watching him play because we see that passion and that commitment and everything that he does. But he needs to be loved, doesn't he? Yeah. And he needs to feel that love from his, his club, his organisation. Jovinko is a player that I don't want to see leave MLS. I have to be clear about that. I don't want to see him leave Toronto. I think he's important for for every part of that football club. He's important on the field. He's important off the field. He's important for for the kids coming through, through the academy or TFC2 or any kind of level. But he's an asset. You said it, KG. He's an asset. You have to decide what that asset's worth. And I think TFC have decided that asset's not worth the number that they were paying him for the, the years before. So they're trying to come to some kind of agreement where they pay him a little bit less. He feels he is worth that. So you've got a conflict there between between the organisation and the football player. If I'm the president or the general manager of Toronto FC, I want to deal with that ASAP. I want to make a decision on that and be done with it or move on. And I would be telling him and his agent that and if I was getting negative repercussions from that, then and move the player on because no player is ever bigger than a football club. Mm. And at the moment, TFC are in real danger of allowing, uh, sorry to bring Josie into this because he's not really part of this, but two guys, an opportunity to try and make themselves bigger than the football club. But TFC have brought that on themselves, mate. They have because they've not dealt with it. Because they've not dealt with it. That's what I'm saying. So they have to deal with it and show that no player is bigger than the football club. And, and, and if it was me, that's what I would do. I'd make a decision. I'd be very clear. I'd be very public with that as well, KJ. And I'd give the player an ultimatum. Here's what it is. You're going to leave if you don't want to sign this. And that's that's how you can stay. And if you love the city and you love the football club, then you'll sign it. If you think you want to go and earn more money in Saudi Arabia or wherever, then off you go. Thank you very much for a tremendous four years. No emotion. Deal with the situation. Have your recruitment team ready with the next solution and move forward. I know we're going ridiculously long on this, Shorty. So <laughs> the one thing is just staring at us, isn't he? <laughs> Enough. No, move on, guys. The one thing finally I would say is that every point you make is great. The one thing I would counter it is that if they're now willing to go to $5 million multi year yeah. deal with Javinko, fans out there are now in their right minds to ask, well, what's another two or two and a half? It was one thing if the club would come out and say, going forward, we are not going to pay players five, six million dollars, but they haven't. No. So we had a discussion on this very show where we say, what is the replacement value of the of, of him? So if you're not go- so if you're if you're willing to pay Sebastian Jovinko five million dollars a year with no transfer fee for a 33-year-old player that you still believe can shine for three years. Who are you going to go get to replace him? And can you get him without a transfer fee? Because if you go out and get a player and say, yeah, he's going to be as good as Jovinko, we'll pay him three, four million. Yeah. And by the way, he has 10, 15 on a transfer fee. People have every mind to go, why don't you just keep Jovinko? You should have just kept him and paid him the money instead of the transfer fee. No, well, no, I, I disagree. And I'm going to try and explain why quickly, because more than any other league in the world, this is all about a number on a player's head and it's whether he fits into the conventional salary cap he's a designated player he's a targeted allocation player you have to be so precise with your dollar amount that if you decide he's a 4 million player and and by the way this TFC lost a lot of money when they won the MLS Cup so they're trying to get to a sustainable franchise that can make money 
or at least not lose so much. So there is a clear initiative there to reduce that wage bill. So you've got to reduce it somehow. You decide what his number is, what you'd like to keep him at. And if he stays for that, he does. And if he doesn't, you move him on. Second point, your recruitment has to be spot on. We've saw in Atlanta, they get it right. We've saw in TFC in recent years. Spotty. Yes. Vanderweil, as we mentioned, Akechi. Vasquez was terrific and I think that they did the right thing in moving him on it was the right time but you got to get the recruitment right you got to be ready with the player to replace him otherwise it's, there's going to be a lot of angst from the terraces and it's going to spill onto the field and it's going to be a big issue so uh, I, I, th I think they're right in having that number in mind and trying to stick to it you're just testing your quality of staff and the ability you better get it right you better get it right because if you don't there's going to be big problems and there's also going to be a lot of animosity from the support. Could talk about this all night. Yeah, Sorry, Sean. Apologies <laughs> for everybody listening that the show went on. <laughs> no problem at all. A uh, couple quick hits from Europe. We'll before, make them quick. Before we uh, move on, uh, Thierry Henry, uh, sacked from Monaco, uh, seemingly forced out by some senior players, management, etc. Uh, do you do you believe Henry has a future in coaching? Is this just a blip on his radar? Yikes, this is not good for him. There's no, a lot of reports come out that some of the stuff he's been doing there has not been a little bit off left field as well. Um, Falcao going to ownership groups complain about some things. Yeah, uh, it's it. I feel like he does have a bit more of a future than Gary Neville, but his Sky Sports <laughs> pundit basically is he's almost done the same thing, yeah, as Neville here. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm worried for him. I, th I think that it's the age old story where you get a world class player who has too big an ego and, and can't really. Uh, adapt to management and I see that a little bit here and it's it's way too early to write him off but this is not good for him and I don't know how he can ever survive this to, to be sacked so quickly for him to go back to the, who seems like the previous guy in Jardim yeah. to ask him to come back it's just it's just awful for him isn't it I mean the, the, the team's young and aging in the wrong direction and yeah. young in the other direction it was never an easy place to go into look i know if you get in a, whenever you get a new job it's because something's gone wrong because someone's got fired for it but it's just i think you got to be careful what you pick yeah <laughs> where does he go next KG? Know, does he go back to england or does he stay in europe it's it's a big choice the I next know. one he takes is the last one if it goes wrong yes there's always the mls <laughs> <laughs> um Report today sounds like uh, Almiron to Newcastle is uh, is all but done um, for a record twenty million pounds. Mm. Do you see him fit at Newcastle, and do you f see him fit in the Premier League? Yes, and yes, I think it's an outstanding signing. Um, unlike Danny Mills, we can talk because we've seen him. <laughs> um, for those who've, who've saw the Danny Mills quote on Twitter, who, I don't know what he's like. That's, I've never seen him play. Uh, <laughs> embarrassing. Um, yeah, look, he'll be a player that the educated fan base at St. James's will fall in love with, an explosive player who I believe will not, um, he'll not hide even though I think he'll be arguably their best player immediately. He'll be able to drive forward a lot. That left foot can open the game up really well. He, he has an eye for the final pass, works really hard, can play out wide as well as a number 10. Um, the only thing I would say, if there is a negative, is that there's been a lot of history of South American players going to the northeast of England yeah. and suddenly wanting to go back to London. Um, that's just 
I mean, we can say that because we love the place. We've been spent a lot of time there. You've lived there. It's yeah. not a slight on that. That is just a fact of history. Uh, but I do think Almiron is a terrific player that can play in the, at a Premier League level very well. Yeah, you, when you go to Newcastle or the North East, you have to understand the people and the geography really quickly. Now, that's easier for someone from Scotland than it is from someone from Paraguay. Yeah. I understand that's one pundit like or... Uh, compared him to Norberto Solano today, which made me laugh because he's nothing like the player. Norberto Solano was a good friend of mine. But I will tell a story about Nobby. Nobby was a guy who adapted to life in the Northeast. His wife's now from Newcastle. He still lives there. You know, Obviously, he's a, uh, back and forward to South America, but he, he still lives there most of the time. And the best ones go there and they embrace it, KJ. So that's the key for Almiron. Uh, embracing life in the Northeast. They live and breathe football. There's no doubt in my mind that he has the quality to play well there. He has the what rate. The fans will love that side of him. He has that little bit of jink, that bit of quality. He'll score one from 25 yards. Yeah. I'm really excited about this. I'm glad he's going to one of my former clubs. And I'm really delighted in the way that Atlanta United did their business. They proved that they are the outstanding team in MLS at the moment. And from top to bottom, just the way they go about their business. They could have crumbled. They could have accepted less dollars. No, this is what it costs. And we're going to hang in there. And we've got four DPs and we don't care. We'll come to a solution. They're doing things so professionally. I love it. And I'm excited about the future of MLS. Just when I see a franchise like this in its second season, going into its third season, doing things properly. Absolutely. Class right from the top. Um, maybe he can be the next Julio Jordio from Harry Enfield. <laughs> Played well, like <laughs> Terrible Jordi accent, sorry. <laughs> Google Julio Jordio for those of you. Many Brilliant. of you, the 99.9% .9 of you who are listening have no idea what we're talking about. <laughs> Apologies. But Julio Jordio is very funny. Uh, um, yeah, talking of Atlanta United, uh, recently I was in Orlando and had a really good chat with their new manager, Frank DeBoer. And I hope you listen to it. Because I hope you enjoy it because there's a lot to like about here, including, by the way, Frankie de Jong, who was off to Barcelona. Frank DeBoer tells me a great story about how they discovered him and how they signed him at Ajax, much about the football, the way it goes right now as well, and the modern day football. So here is a part of my interview with Frank DeBoer. Frank, we are here in, in Orlando. Uh, yeah. You played here in, in 1994. Yes. Uh, yeah. Good good memories, I guess. Any World yeah, Cup is good. Yeah, that was fantastic. Uh, we were uh, quite close, you know, uh, from here, uh, stationed at uh, Lake Nona, golf resort. Mm -hmm. It was fantastic. And uh, yeah, and also the everything around was uh, good organized like the American can do. And uh, so I have good memories. I Also some bad memories because... It was so unbelievable hot sometimes at uh, playing days. You know, it was like 40, 45 degrees yeah. uh, on the pitch. And uh, yeah, it was quite suffering sometimes. <laughs> but I guess playing in a World Cup is a pinnacle. Is it not for, for a player? Yeah, no, the World Cup is for every player the highest level you can perform. And 94 was, of course, my first time. Mm -hmm. and. If I go back and, you know, do some feedback over the tournament, I thought, okay, they didn't saw the Frank de Boer they should have seen. Mm -hmm. Of course, I was uh, 20, just went 24 and, yeah, I didn't play really bad, but also not good. And uh, at the end, you know, the last game against Brazil, I didn't play. Uh, I think uh, Jan Wouters played. Mm -hmm. And, uh, but... Overall, I wasn't satisfied about my performance. 
the Dutch team right now, it looks like it is turning around with yeah. a lot of good young players, uh, good young Ajax players too. Yeah. Um, how excited are you to watch this young team? Yeah, very excited. Of course, uh, I know those players quite good. Uh, Matthijs de Ligt, I knew him already when he was playing in the under 12 or something like that. Uh, I remember that uh, Dennis Bergkamp was his uh, coach at that time. Uh, so I saw him, you know, developing. Also Frankie de Jong, I remember that we trying to, to sign him when he was like 16 years old. And Mark Overmars, the technical director, said, uh, I have Frankie de Jong now in my office. Uh, can you just uh, drop, uh, pass by, you know, as a head coach of the Ajax of, uh, team? And uh, I did. And uh, of course, I heard already good stories about him. So, I tried to convince him to come to Ajax because this yeah. is the best step he can make for his career and uh, he listened well. <laughs> How proud are you of them now as many people are looking at these players as maybe going on to Barcelona? Yeah, can, can, I'm very can... proud. You know, it, you know, it uh, shows you, you know, that you know, if a good uh, academy is very mm-hmm. important. It's, it's the lifeline, especially for smaller leagues. And uh, yeah, of course, it's a pity they... Uh, Probably after one half or two seasons, they uh, are going to leave uh, our league. But still, uh, you can also be very proud of it. You know that we still, as a small country, we develop that kind of talent. Can they be the best? The world? Can they be legitimately world-class players? Do you think for a very long time they're, they're that good? I think they can. Uh, also, if I see how character-wise they are built, you know, mm. I think they can. You lived it. How big is mentality? Yeah, you know, uh, I always say, you know, uh, mentality wins over talent when talent doesn't have mentality. So, and I think they, the both players, both have those, uh, both things. So, for me, I have no doubt that they will be world-class players. The Dutch have a few already. Virgil yeah. van Dijk has been absolutely magnificent for Liverpool this yeah. season. We do the Premier League on, on TSN. How impressed are you of Virgil and, and what makes him so special? No, I'm very impressed right now. I think he's, you know, in, in comfort zone so big as this area. I don't know. It's unbelievable uh, how he's playing right now. Also the last game uh, against City. I think he was by far the best player of Liverpool and I think Fernandinho was on the other side mm-hmm. the best player, but uh, yeah, he's very important. He's a leader, but he's also calmness. You know, it's so important uh, when he's also having the ball or defending wise. But and the, I think the best thing is that you think he because he's tall, he's slow, but he's also very fast. He can turn very, and that makes a difference between a very good centre back or, or not. And he's not afraid to play on the half. Way line with uh, 30 yards behind his back because mm-hmm. he can also recover with his speed. And uh, yeah, he's a quite complete uh, centre back and he can also score some goals sometimes. He so can. Yeah. Um, the Premier League didn't necessarily work out for you, maybe no. it is in your future. Uh, how did that make you a better coach? Of course, you learn from your mis- or mistakes, but also learn from. Uh, Things that yeah didn't succeed and uh, sometimes you know it's just, it doesn't has a, have a good match and I think uh, especially with Crystal Palace wasn't a good match. Uh, uh, you can say that also with Inter, but of course you coming into uh, clubs that 
they are struggling. And, uh, and I always say, you know, you need six months really to really get an ID to the place what you want. And yeah. when I was training on the 12 at Ajax, after six months, I was really seeing signs. Hey, this is what I had in mind, you know, what I want to see on the, uh, on the pitch. Yeah. And they expect, you know, in, in three weeks or four weeks that you do the things that you have in mind. No, it's impossible. Nobody can do that. And uh, so, yeah, in football, you know, uh, time is uh, money and, you know, points are so important. Mm -hmm. So they don't give you the time to really build something from, from scratch. And, uh, mm -hmm. and you, can, you can talk to any manager, coach. You know, you need that uh, time to really, uh, yeah, get them your philosophy in their head, and that cannot be in in four weeks. It has brought you to Atlanta, yes. a terrific franchise who just won MLS Cup in a yeah. magnificent environment. What excites you about this challenge? Now, first of all, you know, I, when I spoke to them uh, first in London, then uh, in Atlanta, you know, uh, about the uh, uh, how do you say that uh, the value, uh, their core values, you know, it's so so important. And I think, or only for that already, I had from the beginning, from the start, a very good feeling, you know, just to act normal, uh, have a lot of respect for the fans, are so important, but also uh, the kitman, every everything, you know, is important. And I think uh, Arthur Blank is there a very important person for that to to yeah, to be yeah, focused on that. That that's still happening at uh, United because. Uh, it's his uh, club, is uh, his club, and he wants to, that it's it's um, lead by people who are you know integer and you know and work hard, of course, with a good uh, work ethic. And yeah, for me, from that starting point, I thought, okay, now we can go to the next point. Okay, what's the football like and everything? And uh, that was also good. The stadium, everything, you know, uh, looks fantastic and yeah i think a lot of clubs also in europe can make an example how this club is run fascinating you are part of a a bit of an overseas revolution in terms of coaches coming into this league now yeah. um what is your perception of the league from an outsider and how quickly it is growing i think it's growing very fast and uh of course, people want to come here because a lot of times it's also a new culture, but uh, it's, it's a major sp uh, sport it's, uh, already. It can, uh, the MLS is trying to, yeah, to make it like a brand like the NBA, NBA and uh, they're doing well. And, uh, and I think uh, what I said already, you know, Atlanta United uh, has done also, you know, like a different approach uh, from the beginning. They didn't sign uh, players who had a great career already. Yep. No, they sung, signed young, talented player who really can uh, be top players, not only in MLS, but also, uh, for example, for maybe for the Premier League. And it's a different approach. And uh, they, they bought players for 15 million. And I think, yeah, that's a start that the MLS will be uh, stronger and stronger. And also the MLS want that the academies are uh, at every club. Uh, so, yeah, I think all those ingredients uh, yeah, will make that the MLS will grow every year 
better and better. You talked earlier, Frank, about what you stepped into with Inter and Crystal Palace. You're following Tata Martino here, yeah. who is handing you um, keys to a pretty good yeah. place, yeah? No, of course, uh, in one way it's an advantage, otherwise it's a disadvantage because normally you cannot go uh, better than winning the MLS Cup. On the other side, you know, uh, you come in, in a club where everything is calm, it's good structure, and you can work, yeah, uh, not looking around or get a step in your back mm-hmm. uh, from the beginning almost. So uh, that's also nice to have one time. Uh, but of course, uh, we can always do better. And uh, I said, okay, we have a great hardware, we can, but we have to update it a little bit and uh, even make it. Uh, even uh, sometimes when we struggle a little bit to, to make it better. and But it's also going to be a much harder season than uh, last season because everybody expects that we win. That's a different approach also mentality-wise. Uh, we're going to play CONCACAF Cup. Uh, we have a USA Cup. So we're going to play every three, four days we have a game. And also the, the players have to be mentally prepared uh, for that. So uh, it's, a, it's a great challenge, uh, but it's not easy, that's for sure. But you play tactically very quite similar to Tatar in terms yes. of your beliefs in the way yeah. the game should be played. That will help, yes? Yeah, of course, that will help. And uh, that's why probably they, they chose me as uh, to be the new uh, head manager. So, but... Uh, yeah, still uh, we have to, we can do things to, to improve, but uh, Tata did a fantastic job and uh, yeah, big compliments for them. By the way, on that for final, quest- final question, and thanks for your time, the way that you believe soccer should be played, how, are you, how do you love the fact that it is very much like that now in 2019, tactically where we are in the game? It has evolved so much, maybe rapidly over the last decade to the, to the highest level. Yeah, especially you know, to, to attract uh, the audience. And uh, if you see, for example, you, if you, you compare it, for example, to Italy, you know, like 10 years ago, they played only Catenaccio almost, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, Buffon couldn't play from the back, you know, and now see what he's doing. And almost every goalkeeper in Italy, you know, can play, you know, if a position game, for example. And they want to build up from behind. And, and you see what's happening in England and everything. So I think it developed uh, fantastic. It's even faster and faster. Also, the transition is so important nowadays. Uh, you think you are attacking and two seconds later, it's in your own goal, you know. So uh, I think it's very attractive. And uh, yeah, that's for all parts. It's, it's fantastic the for television, for fans. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, for the clubs itself also. Frank, I could listen to you all day talk yeah. about soccer. I know time is precious, but it's great to have you in Major League Soccer. Yeah, I'm it's very great, excited. It's great to bring your, your wisdom here and congratulations on the hire and good luck for 2019. Thank you very much. Fascinating chat there with Frank DeBoer. Um, a man who's done it all, you know, he's done, and the pathway of from Dutch football to the top level of Barcelona. Interesting, I, I spoke to him just you know, a few days before Frankie de Jong made that move, but it, you know, it's great just to hear of a guy who's, who's lived it. Yeah, a, a trailblazer for football playing centre house, wasn't he? Yeah. He, was, he was one of the first kids that I remember of, of our era anyway, where he could step forward and hit that 70 yard pass with his left foot, play between the lines. And we see so many guys being able to do that now within world football that it's almost, it almost becomes common. But back in the day, Frank de Boer was, I don't know, 
six foot and smaller than most centre halves, not as physical, but it was all about that ability to play the ball. Brilliant player, him and his brother. I watched them play. They had some time at Rangers as well. Uh, you know, an inspiration to me. Someone that I like to try and take parts of his game. I was never anywhere near it, but I wanted to be a bit cultured on the ball as well. So I'm delighted he's in MLS. I think he's a good manager, KJ. I, I have to say that he, he had a, a poor spell at Inter Milan where it was very difficult, and then obviously a really poor spell at Crystal Palace where he was he was under the microscope from day one, and then you know pushed out of town a little bit too early. Maybe tried to change things too quickly. So be interesting to see how he's developed. Uh, you know, uh, mentally and what he wants to change going into Atlanta and into MLS and uh, I hope he's going to be a great asset for the league. Yeah, a really smart hire. I think it fits the mold, Sean, of what they brought in and, you know, you talk about that 70-yard pass. I can't, I have to say that one of my favourite goals of all time, yeah, Dennis Bergkamp, Bergkamp, 1998 World Cup and who hit the 70-yard pass? Debord. Frank Debord. <laughs> Shorty, time for hashtag Ask AFP. Remember, we love to listen to you guys and hear from you guys and make it interactive. We want to talk to you more about it. It's one of the reasons why we created this podcast. Hashtag Ask AFP. Get your questions in and we'll answer them every week, Sean. Yep, just make sure to follow us at at a football pod. Um, Dylan Dyson asks, uh, what are your favorite football cliches? Uh, he thought of this while Steven mentioned banana skin team. Um, <laughs> I've always been a fan of uh, Get Stuck In, and that's from uh, Dylan Dyson. Oh, wow. Um, banana skin. I love that one. I say it way too skin. often. Yeah. Yeah. Football, some cliches that stick with me are ones that really gripe me a little bit, like schoolboy defending. <laughs> I always feel bad for the schoolboys. Schoolboys. Because I don't know. Some like, of them are great some defenders. Some of them are great players. I'm like, you know, when you hear like, you know, Gary Bertels, my favorite analyst, oh, Gary Bertels. you love Gary, Gary Bertels, who travels on a time machine from the 80s to, to, to broadcast every game that he does now in 2018. He's just mad at the world, isn't he? He's yeah, just so negative. annoyed. Everything's rubbish. You know, uh, schoolboy defending out there. I'm like, well, I'm pretty sure some good kids play schoolboy defending. I don't know about you, but I'm sure, you know, when you playing schoolboy um and uh, i know but just the, i know one that really gets on your nerves so i'm going to tell you this um journeyman journeyman yeah yeah, that, yeah. that's just a disrespect. premier league journeyman i uh, you know there's a million pretty good 100 million people it's that like, like to be a premier league journeyman eh? how hard it is to become a professional yeah. player and he's a journeyman i always think that's a little Any bit more than six clubs you're a journeyman yeah, you know like, yeah i don't like that one i it's easy to get into the mindset of, of saying these little cliches. Eh? I think get stuck in is my favourite one as I well. Like yes. I think, to be honest, as the next footballer, you do a great job of avoiding many of them. <laughs> Although you. our friend, Terry Dunfield, we have to tell his story. Oh. Very, very, very quickly. Dunfield Bingo? Right Dunfield Bingo. We create, so Dunfield does some games on TSN and we have a chat when he's doing it and sometimes we, we have to entertain ourselves <laughs> when Dunfield's doing the games. I created something, was it last year or the year before, called Dunfield Bingo. <laughs> Things that he says in every MLS game, we just tick it off and send them <laughs> Check mark. Emoji check yeah. mark. Take. It's turning into a track meet. <laughs> he loves track he meet, loves doesn't track he? When meet. I hear track meet, I can't help but laugh. That's my favourite one. Anytime now when you listen to Dunfield, and just keep this between us guys, because Dunfield's not going to listen to our show. So anytime <laughs> now that you hear Dunfield use track meet in an MLS game, just put it on Twitter, hashtag AskAFP, and we can all laugh at when, his When he's calling a game, though, my kids say, Dad, Dad, can we play Dunfield bingo? <laughs> they think it's an actual game. Yeah. So Everyone can play it at home now. Well, <laughs> um. Fan of the pod, Will Caldwell asks. Oh, oh no! <laughs> could be in his bed. Could Stephen tell us the time that Thierry Henry scored four on him? Oh, this is a great, oh. Story. <laughs> a great story. Thanks, Will, for that one. Huh? Yeah, Highbury Friday night, playing for Leeds United. Uh, we were down near the bottom of the league, and we're playing against the Invincibles, and Thierry Henry's playing. So, uh, 
5 0 it ends up. The last goal, he's already scored his hat trick. He's going through and goal. Gary Kelly trips him up. He's he's fallen to the ground and he still manages trips to. Trips him up. It's like yeah. karate kicking. Yeah, he's, he's going down, KJ. He's <laughs> yeah, going I remember down. it. Yeah, I remember he's it. He's just trying to yeah. assault him. Yeah, he did. He's like, I can't let this guy score another goal. And he, he, he stubs his toe, it seems like, into the turf over the shoulder of, of Paul Robinson into the back of the net for his fourth goal. And we come inside, and for anybody who's been to Highbury, you'll know the roads right next or old Highbury. You know the roads right next to where the changing rooms are. Literally, there's a wall, and there's glass windows where the fans are all walking by, and you hear the noise, and you know everyone's cheering. It's the home fans, and we're sitting there in silence. We're devastated. Our coach was Eddie Gray, great Scottish player and Leeds United legend, and Eddie's standing there, and we're waiting for him to speak, but we're all just kind of got our heads down. I'll never forget after about five or six minutes, he just looks up and he looks at every one of us and he said, we didn't play that bad. <laughs> <laughs> and we looked at each other and we're sort of nodding. We actually played all right and we lost 5-0. The best team I've ever played against by a country mile and the greatest player I've ever had the pleasure to share a field with. So Will Caldwell, I'm delighted I got to experience that because there's not many that can say they can. Yeah, Will, keep working hard and you might one day do that yourself. <laughs> <laughs> um, John Cash asks... Uh, can a team be really considered the best in Europe by winning a seven games Champions League if they haven't won their 38 game domestic league? Wow. I like that question. Um, you know what? This is something that Stevie and I have discussed on air many times over the last few years doing the Champions League on TSM with Real Madrid because Real Madrid have established themselves during this era, four out of the last five, yeah. of being the Champions League team. And quite frankly, we'd watch them a lot of the times going, they're not that good. Yeah. And yet they keep finding ways to win. And domestically, and I think I'm doing this off memory, but during those five years that they've won four Champions League, I think they've won one Spanish title. I think that affects their legacy myself, but I think I'm in the minority. I think there's something uniquely special about winning that wonderful cup with yeah. those big ears and lifting that magnificent trophy that I do think that the players certainly believe that they're the best in Europe when they win it and it's hard to argue with them. It is hard to argue because as a player you look to that trophy the, the iconic uh, memories of that trophy means that you, you feel you're the best team in Europe when you win it and um, I, I agree with you KJ it's you could argue if you have a team like the Invincibles who obviously never won it that year but went a full domestic campaign without losing a game or many of the great Barcelona teams that maybe just lost in moments, uh, you could have called them the best team in Europe that year. But it's a unique competition because when it gets to the the sort of nitty-gritty and I'm talking about the knockout stages, it's it's... About moments, isn't it? Because, you know, we, we did last year's tournament with Bayern Munich and Real Madrid and they're finely balanced. We thought Bayern Munich were the better team, they're going to get it done, but Real Madrid find moments when it really matters. And and that is, uh, you know, a, a measure of greatness and, and a measure of a team with, with everything about them, you know, technical ability, but heart and desire belief. and fight and belief yeah. and confidence and, and, and uh, you know, team spirit and teamwork. And I think once you take all that together, I mean, you think about all the little moments where you just thought they were going to break and they managed to find a goal from... Marcelo or Benzema or whoever it was, it was always somebody different. Was it Ramos? That, that adds to their special. Big save from Navas, yeah. a goalie that maybe we're a bit critical from. We think there's maybe five, six, seven, eight better goalies in the tournament, and he finds a save at the right time. You've got to call them the best team in Europe. Perfect. Um, Dan Getz asks, "Why does a goalkeeper like Romero agree to be a backup at Manchester United?" 
when he almost never plays. How is this helping his career? Um, well, Dan, I might be the wrong person to ask this, but <laughs> not one of your favourites, Romero. It's is because it, Romero's rubbish. <laughs> I'm sorry, he's rubbish. He's a, he's a rubbish goalkeeper. I don't want to hear. Oh well, he would have been Argentina number one because he was injured. Doesn't make him good. Um, so I think that's why he's a backup um, at United. And um, how does it help his career? I don't know. It doesn't really help his career. But um, there's there's a lot of goalies out there that just become substitute goalies for their whole careers. But I always find that if you're really good enough, you'll find number one. I think you should be number one wherever your level is. And, and I, uh, I have a gripe against goalkeepers particularly because they wait years and years. Sometimes a player has to wait six months on an opportunity, even a year. But then eventually, to me, you have to go and play. I, you know, I was at Newcastle and I was playing anywhere between five and 15, 20 games a year. And to me, that was never enough, KJ. And mm. I wanted to go and establish myself somewhere. So I dropped down a league. I went to Sunderland. And, I, you know, I went between the two leagues for my entire career because I needed to play. I wanted to play. And you get some goalkeepers who stay at their club for a long, long time. And they know, you know, he must know deep down that he's never going to play ahead of David De Gea. So why is he hanging around there? His career's flowing away. You know, whatever we think about him, we think he's a pretty average goalkeeper, but he could play at a lot of pretty established clubs in Europe. Yes. Yeah, go and play, go and find a team, go and play football, because yeah. before you know it, you're going to be too old. You're going to be looking in the mirror and you're thinking, what did I do for five or six years to play a few Europa League games or the odd Carabao Cup game? You know, it's not enough to me. Romero should leave. He should have the desire to leave and the ambition to leave Manchester United. Trevor Ellis asks, after watching uh, Sunderland on Netflix, had him wondering, Stephen, uh, can you share some stories about your time there, uh, about the championship in general, and how does TFC and MLS compare to the championship? Uh, comparing TFC and, and MLS to the championship is really difficult. I, I think when you take in the factors of travel and weather and everything that MLS brings compared to the grind and the, the, the gruel of the championship it, it is difficult for me to compare the standards. There's some excellent players in MLS and there's some excellent players in the championship. Um, the season that we were so successful in the championship with Sunderland when we won it, 04-05, was really special. And um, the stories that I can share are, are, are mostly about team and, and about account accountability, Sean. It was a, a group of guys that were just... had a drive and an ambition to succeed and um, the the way that we would go about our business was, it was often not pretty. We weren't a pretty side, but we found a way with a lovely mix of experience and, and, and Gary Breen and Jeff Whitley and Carl Robinson, Thomas Myra, Mark Poom, two terrific goalkeepers fighting out. And then we had this group of, you know, sort of 20 to 24 year olds, myself included, some coming from higher Premier League teams that were, were looking to establish a career and, you know, to, to play every week, like I just mentioned earlier, uh, Stephen Elliott coming from Manchester City and then uh, Liam Lawrence, who's coming from lower leagues and Dean, Dean Whitehead, who went on to have terrific Premier League careers um, and professional football careers in general. And so that blend was magnificent. And lastly, we had a manager in Mick McCarthy who was the 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 leader of that group, the guy that brought everything together. And he did that through a pure honesty. Anyone that knows Mick McCarthy will know what I'm talking about. He, he can't go through life without being honest, whether he's he, you know he's a broadcaster, he's a manager, he's he, he's a player. That's what he's that's what he's all about. And 
it was about calling people out. A quick story, we were at Watford, it was maybe November, horrible game, KJ, raining, we should have won, Watford were mid-table, we were up near the top, we drew one each, we never played very well, we come in at the end and, and mix, you know, terrible and shocking, he's just going through us. And I'm a 24-year-old player and I was getting madder by the minute because I knew what we put in the game and I just felt, you know, it was a point, it would have been easy just to kind of lose that game 2-1 and I stood up and I said, Gaffer, you know, we, we gave our best and you never know that point may become important. And the minute I did it, I looked round <laughs> and he was staring at me with that Yorkshire, you know, and I thought, oh, he's going to kill me. <laughs> I got scared and my teammates couldn't get further back in the wall. They were just like pinning themselves back. None of them was standing up to come and help me and I'm like, oh, here we go. And my face was red, my voice was shaking and we had it out and we had this little, you know, kind of argument and discussion in the changing room. And the next day, I was worried about coming in and I came in and I looked at Mick. How are you, Steve? How are you, Gaff, on that? Completely forgot about. Perfect, yeah. He was a guy that never held a grudge. He understood what was needed to win. He knew nothing was ever personal. You know, it was just two people that wanted to win. And there's countless stories like that. It's not just about me or Mick. There was countless stories. Two players face to face, half time, nil nil at Stadium of Light, going to kill each other because one never stayed with a runner that resulted in a throw in in the last third. This was a changing room where, you know, if you didn't have a personality, you could wilt very, very quickly. And I loved every minute at KJ. I learned so much from the guys, Gary Breen, Carl Robinson, go on, Jeff Whitley, guys that were my same age, just brilliant characters. And I miss every one of them. Stays with you forever. No? Yeah, it does. And by the way, watching Sunderland till I die and continuing to keep an eye on their results. Quite frankly, I don't think they have enough of those people right now <laughs> to get back to where they should be because Sunderland are a football club in the doldrums and hopefully get back to the Premier League where they deserve to be uh, for many, many years. That's it for today's show. Uh, thanks to Stephen Colwell again. Enjoyed Thank that, mate. Thank you, KJ. That was brilliant. Yeah. yeah, thanks to Clay. Thanks to Dylan and Sean. And thanks to Frank DeBoer. And a reminder, February 28th, we'll be doing a live taping of the podcast at the Rivoli in downtown Toronto. If you are interested in coming to the event, tickets are $20 and available for purchase at homestandsports.com slash events slash AFP. We'll put that out on all our social media platforms as well. Please come, please talk to us and rate and review the podcast. We really appreciate you listening to it and uh, give us your thoughts on this. And we'll chat with you on Sunday. 